radio.com and click on connect or look up hashtag Afrobeat Radio. It's going to be fun. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. It's now 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Max and Murphy coming up. From Orchard Beach to Flushing Meadows, along the Green Belt and through Central Park, and right here in the beautiful borough of Brooklyn, it's 5 p.m. in the five boroughs, so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits and CityLimits.org. My uh, partner, the Ernie to my Bert, the Ponch to my John, Ben Max, is on a very well-deserved vacation today and this week, so I am solo with you until 6 p.m., and uh, that is not going to be enough time to get to all the headlines breaking in our city and state along the lines of policies and politics. Just today, the city launched a new ferry line from Soundview, announced plans and some of its design features for the new jails that it plans to replace Rikers Island with eventually. Uh, we heard about the Charter Commission putting forward some ballot questions. GothamGazette.com has a story on that. City Limits had a story this week about food stamps, now known as SNAP, and whether the city has succeeded at lowering some of the enrollment barriers that have been there for many, many years, uh, which it seems to have done, um, although SNAP recipient numbers continue to drop in the city. And that's just on the policy side. We obviously here on the show, Max and Murphy, have been focusing on the upcoming elections, the September 13th primary, Thursday, September 13th, looming first. So much on that front happening. Uh, you heard on the news break at the top of the hour about AG candidates, uh, attorney general candidates, talking about ride-hailing services. Tonight, three of those attorney general candidates on the Democratic side will be participating in a debate in Harlem, a forum, uh, and they'll be having a formal televised debate on August 28th. Uh, speaking of debates, Governor Cuomo has finally agreed to debate his Democratic primary opponent, Cynthia Nixon. That will occur, I believe, on August 29th. And there's word that while uh, he still maintains a very, very healthy fundraising advantage over Ms. Nixon, Mr. Cuomo is beginning to, to tap into that uh, large uh, campaign war chest he has with all those very slick and very hard to avoid television commercials. They're beginning to eat into his advantage there. And on the Lieutenant Governor uh, line, we have a debate coming up on August 29th between Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, Brooklyn Council Member Jumani Williams. That debate will be hosted by the aforementioned Ben Max, visible on Manhattan News Network, and uh, we believe also listened to eventually on this station. So a lot going on, and we've been focusing on many of those races. They are statewide races uh, that I've mentioned so far, but for many voters across the state, they have a local interest in shaping the composition of the state Senate and particularly the focus of the Democratic Party through primaries for state Senate. As we've mentioned before, several contested races this year, some of them involving former members of the Independent Democratic Conference, some not. But today we'll be looking at one of those races. This is for the 20th Senatorial District, which covers parts of several Brooklyn neighborhoods, including Brownsville, Crown Heights, East Flatbush, 
Gowanus, Park Slope, and others, which I will not mention just so that I can get somebody angry at me and <laughs> note how I have not mentioned it. But we'll be talking today the, to the two Democrats who are vying for that seat. Uh, the incumbent is Senator Jesse Hamilton. He'll join us later. But right now in the studio is the Democratic challenger, Mr. Zellner Myrie. Mr. Myrie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we'll do what we always do here on Max Murphy. Pretend I'm a guy you've run into on Eastern Parkway. I'm a voter, and I'm asking you, what are you running for and why? The biggest issue that we're facing in central Brooklyn right now is housing. We are at the epicenter of the affordability crisis, and we have a unique opportunity in the state Senate to address that. Our housing laws are up for renewal next June, uh, and it's very important that we send people to Albany that will have clean hands when we are renegotiating these housing laws. Right now, the Republicans are in control of the state Senate, and the chair of the Housing Committee is a Republican that represents Lake Placid, which is closer to Canada than it is to New York City, yet that person gets to make the decisions for housing for the folks in Brownsville and Crown Heights. The only reason that that is uh, in existence is because we had some Democrats empower that leadership, and I think it's time for new leadership. Our community deserves someone who's going to be a fighter for our tenants and who's not going to make decisions based on political expediency. So this is the community that I was born and raised in, uh, and it is why I have offered myself uh, to be the next state senator. Tell us a little bit about your life story up to this point uh, before you became a candidate. What uh, what did you get up to? Sure. So uh, as I mentioned, my, my, I was born and raised in this district. My parents moved here about 40 years ago. Um, I went to public school in this district, went to uh, PS 161, uh, then went to Brooklyn Tech for high school, went to Fordham for undergrad and graduate school, and eventually Cornell for law school. Uh, in between uh, college and, and law school, I had the opportunity to work for the city council as a legislative director, uh, and I got to pass some things that, uh, I'm very, that are very important to me uh, that I continue to fight for, and one of those things was the Tenant Bill of Rights. Uh, after uh, leaving the city council, I was chair of Neighborhood Advisory Board, helped secure uh, funding for um, after-school programs and job training and, and protection for housing. Uh, and then I went off to law school. Uh, I was president of my student government. Uh, I took the bar exam early to work for a criminal justice reform organization. Uh, and then came back and worked for a law firm. Uh, did a lot of pro bono work around the issues that are important to me. Uh, did some criminal defense work. Uh, did some immigration work. Uh, and I continued to serve on the Neighborhood Advisory Board in my community. And so um, I really see uh, this run for state senate as an extension of the public service that I've been doing for almost a decade now. So this is the kind of mistake uh, my editors used to always get on me for. We refer to you as a lawyer, but not an attorney yet, because you have not actually registered in New York State. Just explain that quickly. Yeah, no. So I, t I took and passed the bar exam, and I practiced with uh, my law firm uh, and practiced under their auspice, but um, have not been personally admitted uh, because there was a, a, an address change uh, issue that I was working on prior uh, to entering this race. That did not get resolved until about right before the race started, and I figured that I would wait until um, after the race to, to personally be admitted. So let's talk about the uh, your opponent, Senator Hamilton. Uh, he is seeking his third term. He joined the Independent Democratic Conference, which, as you mentioned, uh, aligned itself with Republicans for his second term. How do you assess his overall career? I mean, obviously, half of it was pre-IDC, and some of it over the past few months has been post-IDC. Uh, is there anything that you compliment him on? Um, how do you size it up in general? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's important to, to be clear that I have no personal animosity uh, with my opponent, right? I think that politics, particularly now um, in the age of Donald Trump, uh, can get very personal and can get very ugly. Um, and I've never felt that way about uh, Jesse Hamilton, I think. Um, uh, but what's important to note is what has the community received um, and what, what, what did he do 
and what he was elected to do, right? We elected him as a Democrat to go up to Albany and to fight for democratic values. And I think what we got instead was someone who chose to empower himself, uh, to accrue benefits to himself, uh, and we have suffered um, as a community. We have, I, I mentioned at the top, that the, the civil rights issue of our time is housing. Um, and I think it is very difficult for someone who is representing Central Brooklyn to say that they are a champion for housing when their single biggest contributor happens to be the real estate lobby. And so um, I think that there are um, some good things that the senator has done. I think that he is um, present, right? I, I think that can't be said for every single elected official. Um, so, so I do think that he has presence in the district. But at this time, uh, we don't just need presence, we need leadership. And that's why I think we need a change. We don't get a chance to do a second version of, of history, so you can't really go back and say. But one of the questions that has come up in these discussions we've had about these IDC-related primaries is, you know, Jesse Hamilton was the eighth and final member of the IDC. Um, IDC members will say that the vote of Simca Felder is what made the body Republican-controlled. Even if you don't accept that, there were seven other IDC members who jumped in. Hamilton merely piled on, if you want to call it that. So the question is... What would have been different if him and his one vote had been in the Democratic column for the past 18 months or two years, however long he was there with the IDC aligning with the Republicans? Republicans still would have been in control of the body. He would have been a minority senator. Would the world be different if he had made a different choice? Yeah, so I think it's hard uh, for me to surmise what would have been um, had, had, he, had he voted as a Democrat. Um, but I, I think the decision itself really speaks to his character um, and his ability as a state senator. Um, if you were willing to caucus with the party of Donald Trump, um, if you were willing to, to, to go back on what your community elected you as, what other decisions are you turning your back on? Right? What does that say about your values? What does that say about your ability to keep your word to the people that elected you? Uh, so I think that it's very, you know, what we've been talking to folks about um, is really this sense of what am I expecting from my leaders and what am I expecting from my elected officials? And at the very least, we should be expecting them to do um, what they said they were going to do. The senator told people in public that he was not going to join the IDC. He made that uh, known in public forums, before political clubs, and when he was talking to constituents. So now when we go back and we inform folks that he has done exactly what he said he would not do, I think that informs them of the type of state senator that he is. So Mayor de Blasio hasn't made a lot of endorsements uh, in this election year, but the first one he made was of your candidacy. And that's interesting for, for a few different reasons. One is that, you know, de Blasio is a fascinating character. He's won many citywide elections by large margins, uh, but he still uh, is depicted as sort of searching for uh, a national profile. It is uh, said in some reporting just this week that his many candidates around the state are not anxious to have his support. Why did you welcome it, and how do you assess him as a mayor so far? Yeah, so I think that, uh, as you know, the, the mayor uh, was a city council member in our district, and so uh, he has history within the district, and he has worked uh, with a number of the elected officials, um, including uh, my opponent, in the past. And so uh, I think that it is important uh, for us to get support um, from as many folks as we can, particularly for people who have done work 
in the district. I think that there are things um, uh, that the mayor has done, uh, I think uh, particularly on the affordable housing front, that I am very uh, supportive of. Um, I've also been publicly um, uh, critical of some of our NYPD practices, um, but I think that you don't always agree uh, w with folks right, that you work with. Um, and I think his support, along with the support of every congressional member in the district, the majority of the assembly members in the district, and the majority of the council members in the district really show what my ability would be to work with my colleagues. You know, I think it is unprecedented to see this type of support in a race like this. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm very excited uh, about going forward uh, because I have already started to build the relationships uh, to bring the resources back to the community that we need. You mentioned the NYPD. Where are some areas where you would like to see improvement in that? Yeah, so I think we need greater accountability. You know, we've seen very tragically in our community, um, uh, just you know, recently with Saeed Vassell, we've seen people literally gunned down, uh, and we've seen very little consequence on the law enforcement side. One of the things that allows for this lack of accountability is a state law uh, called 50A, uh, which allows the law enforcement to shield uh, police misconduct. I think that we need to, on the state level, repeal that law uh, because it is common sense. I don't think that we are trying to punish uh, the NYPD as a whole. It's really just folks um, who have a history of misconduct. Um, I also think that we need to give the CCRB uh, stronger teeth. Right now, a police officer can commit misconduct and they sit before a judge that's on the NYPD payroll. That, too, is determined by a state law, um, and I think that we need to reform that as well. And so, you know, we can talk about um, uh, uh, mass incarceration and we could talk about reform to stop and frisk, um, but if there is not accountability for when um, law enforcement does the wrong thing, our community continues to see them operate with impunity, and I think that that erodes the, the trust that we have um, with law enforcement. So I'd like to take action on that on the state level. Some of the groups and people who are supporting Senator Hamilton, I don't know if they're connected with this campaign, but they've critiqued you and they've said that you are a candidate of the gentrifiers in the neighborhood. I'm sure you probably don't accept that mantle, but, but talk about that. It is, uh, there are several neighborhoods, many of them are being remade by gentrification, um, but, but they're New Yorkers and voters too. Do you see there being particular needs of that group that you want to respond to? Are there common needs with folks that are incumbent in the neighborhood? How does gentrification change the job of the state senator for the 20th district? Yeah, I mean, your responsibility as a state senator is to re represent your entire district, right? And I think that this um, divisiveness, I think this politics, uh, quite frankly, of the president, right, making this about race and not about the issues is really despicable, and I don't accept it. I think that we have um, a responsibility in this community uh, to, to make sure that the folks who are moving in here um, are not moving in at, at the... Um, at the, at the consequence of the people who've made the community attractive in the first place. I think it's very interesting that they have made me uh, the, you know, quote unquote, candidate of gentrification when all I've been talking about is housing. Um, and all I've been talking about is preserving our rent stabilized units. And I have refused to take money from the real estate lobby or from developers. And yet my opponent, whose single biggest contributor is the real estate lobby, has the audacity to call me the gentrification candidate. And I think it is just a distraction from his record. I think that it is an attempt to muddy the waters. I think it is an attempt to pit the communities uh, in this district against each other, and we do not accept it, um, and I look forward to representing the entire district. So we are on today with Zenar Myrie, a candidate for 
the 20th Senatorial District, Democrat running on September 13th. We're going to open up the phone lines now. If you have a question for Mr. Myrie, please call 347-335-0818. Let me try that again, 347-335-0818. We want questions, not speeches or benedictions or recipes. Just give us your question. Um, And while we're waiting for some calls, let me ask you about the political landscape you're operating in. Uh, some people have mentioned that the federal primary in June, in which uh, Representative Yvette Clark had a fairly close call, has shifted the table somewhat. Do you feel as though that is true uh, in the politics of the district, and, and how do you feel that might affect your candidacy? I think, excuse me, I think what we've seen, um, uh, not just in our district and in that federal primary, but what we saw across the board on June 26th, was that there was a, a, a desire for um, uh, new leadership. Um, I think there was a desire for people to run unabashedly as, as progressives. Um, and I think some of that energy is in our district as well. You know, I think um, ultimately the Congresswoman was victorious. And so I think that um, I think that it shows uh, that people at the end of the day want someone that's going to get the job done. Uh, but I, I wouldn't prognosticate too much uh, on on what's going to happen in our race based on that race, because I think we're running, um, I think we're running a different race, uh, and I think we're appealing um, to everyone. Our message is resonating with everyone, um, and I look forward to, to seeing those results on September 13th. We do too. We have a call on the line. Welcome to Max and Murphy. You're on WBAI. Who are you? Where are you calling from? And what's your question? Hi, uh, my name is Max. I'm calling uh, from Crown Heights, and my question is: Does Zonor have a position on uh, legalizing marijuana? Good question. Great question. Great question. And thanks for calling in. Yeah, I'm for the full legalization of marijuana. Um, I think that it is um, uh, the time has passed for for full legalization. But I think the conversation also needs to include um, the folks who have been in jail and who have served time based on these same marijuana charges. I think it is, uh, frankly, criminal that we have folks in other states that have been able to profit off of the legalization while there are people that are lingering in jail uh, for the the same use. And so um, I would not only be a proponent of full legalization, uh, but I'd like to see the records expunged uh, based on those marijuana charges. One interesting thing about that topic is there are folks listening, I'm sure, who have been arrested or had loved ones arrested, maybe done some time for possessing marijuana. There also are folks who I'm sure know people who excessively use it and for whom it has been a real problem. Mm -hmm. How do you change the legal consequences um, while also looking to make sure that this doesn't become a problem for people's lives. Yeah, so I think that the issue um, of substance abuse, right, which I think is what you're getting at here, um, is something that we're dealing and we're, we're coming to grips with as a country um, on the opioid side, right? And we have a response that has been one of this is a health issue, this is a health crisis, let's put enough resources into this uh, to, to make sure that people's lives aren't being ruin, ruined by substance abuse. Um, I think that we should take that same approach uh, to, to marijuana, right? If folks um, are struggling with that, I think that we should be investing the same type of resources uh, to prevent folks from, 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 being, um, you know, from being in a situation where they're suffering from chronic substance abuse. Let's take another call. Hi, welcome to Max and Murphy. Who are you? Where are you calling from? And what's your question? Hello. This is Dee. I'm calling from Prospect Heights. Um, I wanted to uh, speak uh, this question and <laughs> propose this question to the uh, gentleman. His name is Myrie. Myrie? That's yes. right. That's an easy question. <laughs> Myrie is the name, right? That's Correct. the last name. That's right. Myrie, right. Mr. Myrie, thank you so much. Are you going to have any meet and greets, like um, forums for um, open discussion where the public can come? 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, in fact, we proposed having open discussions and debates. Um, we did that uh, almost a month and a half ago. Uh, we did not uh, receive a response from my opponent. Uh, and so I think that might be a question that is, is better suited for him. We are much, uh, we are very much ready uh, to have this discussion. And I think it's important, uh, particularly in a district that is as big as ours, uh, that the public get as much information about our positions as possible. I want to ask a question that, uh, looking at the crime stats today, applies very particularly to Brooklyn, which is an increase in shooting incidents over the summer. I think it's about 13% in the precincts that make up Brooklyn South, about 10% in Brooklyn North. Even if gun control were passed tomorrow, you'd still have thousands of guns floating around. What can uh, the state do to reduce violence? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as you know, the transport of, of guns uh, really is something uh, that is under the, the purview of the federal government. We have not, we don't have strong national gun control laws. And so we uh, give folks the ability to bring guns into our state um, from, from the surrounding states. Uh, but I think one thing that a, a state senator can do uh, is invest in the organizations that are working to stop violence in our community, right? Um, we have some of those organizations in our district, um, particularly thinking about East Flatbush Village. Um, that does a lot of intervention work. Um, I've seen the work that they've done. I've seen them occupy corners, um, um, you know, on Friday nights. And I think that uh, we have uh, the ability to support those efforts uh, because they've been shown to be effective. We have another caller, probably the last one we'll be able to take for Zellner Myrie. Hi, welcome to Max and Murphy. What's your question? Hi, uh, my name is I'm from Crown Heights. Uh, my question uh, really is about uh, immigrants. What uh, do you... Are you Working. still there? Can you ask that question again? You cut out for a second. Yes. So sorry. Uh, so uh, my question is, uh, what's your plan uh, to protect our immigrant communities? Uh, thank you very much for that question. And, you know, our community is one of immigrants. I think about 60 percent of the people that live in the district were born in another country. Uh, so this is something that impacts us, I think, in an acute way. There are a couple of laws that have passed in the New York State Assembly a number of times, but that go to the state Senate and die. One of those laws is something called the Liberty Act, uh, which would give every immigrant in a deportation proceeding a lawyer. That makes a world of a difference. Um, and studies have shown that people get to stay here um, much more often when they have some legal defense. I think we also um, have to give driver's licenses to people regardless of their citizenship status. What we've seen um, in Brooklyn recently, we saw a delivery person uh, who got caught up and got called um, into ICE uh, because he didn't have a driver's license, even though he was um, just doing his job. And so I think we need to provide that. I think we also have a responsibility to kick ICE out of our courthouses. Right now, we have immigrants that go to court um, seeking justice, uh, but instead are met with ICE agents in handcuffs. And so I think uh, we need to remove them from our courthouses. And lastly, I think that we need to pass the DREAM Act here in New York. You know, it shouldn't be just the lottery of birth that determines whether or not you get financial aid. Um, and so I, I really would like to see those things passed. All of those things were not able to pass because of Republican control of the state Senate. So I look forward to going in with a Democratic majority and protecting our immigrants. This is a big state, and if you are successful in the primary, and we should mention there will be a general election in November, whoever wins will have to win that before they actually become the next senator or the uh, remaining senator from this district. You'll be in a body with, as you mentioned, people from Lake Placid, people from Buffalo, very different walks of life. How will you communicate the needs of this district to them? Uh, do you feel as though Democrats, if they get the majority, can operate without trying to convince 
folks up there that there's some common cause? Or how do you make that argument? Yeah, I think that, you know, the beautiful thing about uh, the legislature, right, is that the way that our Constitution has built it is that there are mechanisms by which we have formal discussions on the record about the issues. And my and my biggest thing, what I try to communicate to people is we have a huge progressive wish list, um, and I'm going to fight for many of those things on the wish list, but I'm aware that we're not going to get everything passed. But at the very least, we're going to have folks on the record telling us where they stand on the issue, right? And so I plan on reaching out to the folks, reaching out to the Democrats, and even reaching out to the Republicans to try to get our bills passed. Right now, we don't have any of that because it doesn't even come to to the floor for a discussion. I look forward to having the discussion and advocating for the folks in my community. Last question in the minute or so we have left. A lot of the races that are occurring on September 13th have been grafted with um, kind of national consequences, uh, kind of a, a moment of reckoning for the Democratic Party. Uh, this is true of the uh, Joe Crowley loss in the federal primaries, and it's being extended to some of the, uh, the IDC-related and other Senate primaries, too. What do you see? Are there larger consequences, implications to this race? What do you think they are and how do they apply if you if you win or if you lose? Yeah. So I think um, the, the biggest implication for me, and, and perhaps this is me just being um, a snotty New Yorker, but I think that as New York goes, so does the nation. Right. And if we see a progressive wave of candidates take the state legislature and then uh, subsequently we see a bunch of progressive legislation pushed through, I think that that will set the example for the rest of the country to say this is what we can do when we have real progressives in office. You know, people have said, well, what is the state of the Democratic Party um, and where what direction should the party go in? And the truth is, I don't think anyone knows that definitively. But I think what we have shown is that when you run as an unabashed progressive, and when you're talking about universal health care and expanding rent stabilization, um, I think that people have responded to that. Um, and I think that when New York can stand up and say that we are truly the progressive capital of the nation, um, it will have a ripple effect across the United States. Mr. Zellner Myrie, Democrat for 20th Senate District on September 13th. He's a candidate on the ballot of the primary. Thanks so much for coming in and very good luck to you. Thank you very much for having me. we're back on Max and Murphy on 99.5 WBAI-FM, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio, coming to you from Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. We just finished speaking with Zellner Myrie, a Democrat running for the state Senate in the 20th District here in Brooklyn. We'll have his opponent, Mr. Senator Jesse Hamilton, on in just a few minutes. But as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. My colleague Ben Max from GothamGazette.com is on vacation this week. Next week, we'll be reversing roles. He'll be here, and I'll have my feet in a lake and my hands on a fishing pole somewhere in Maine. And uh, that time of year brings up the prospect of some good vacation reading and is a propitious time for us to inaugurate here on Max and Murphy an occasional segment that basically, for lack of a clever name, will be called Things We Think You Should Read. Uh, hopefully you'll have some vacation time or some beach time at least coming up between now and the unofficial end of summer on Labor Day weekend. And if so, I hope you'll give a look to a few recent articles. Uh, one of them is in the New York Magazine, at least it's online. It's an interview with Steve Bannon uh, by Noah Culwin. If you haven't read that interview, I really suggest you do it. It's uh, short 
And it's fascinating to hear uh, the former Goldman Sachs exec and obviously the strategic brain behind Donald Trump's 2016 candidacy talking about the financial crisis, its implications for right-wing populism. It's a very interesting read. I think you'll find some uh, surprising parallels between the critiques of the right and the left that doesn't uh, absolve Bannon of his other alleged sins. Um, but it does give one pause and, and maybe inspiration or maybe a challenge to thinking about a uh, path forward for, for left populist politics, if, that is, if that's your vein. Uh, the Nation has an excellent piece in this week's issue about uh, journalism in the age of Trump. And it's not a critique chiefly of the president and his way of discussing the press and uh, dismissing the press, insulting reporters, calling us enemies of the state. It's really about journalism itself and its reaction to Trump and a concern that I'm hearing a lot of people talk about, that journalists in a lot of spheres are following the president down into the basement and abandoning some very important practices a lot of which could lead to a further erosion of trust in the press. That's an article by Michael Massing, and it's a great read. In The Intercept just today, a great article by Liliana Segura uh, talking about the death penalty in Tennessee. Uh, just a, a good visitation of death penalty as a national issue, something that here in New York with our criminal justice reform conversation, which obviously has a lot of uh, territory to cover still, we forget just how far different we are from other states where they're still executing people. Liliana does a great job of, of exploring the issue in all its uh, facets, from the um, bizarre science of execution itself to some of the obvious legal and racial concerns about it. And lastly, if you're looking for something a little bit uh, thicker and deeper, there's a book I've been reading called Ramp Hollow by Stephen Stoll. It's a look at uh, Appalachia and the expropriation of land from the Scotch-Irish there it's a book about Appalachia, but it's something that applies to a lot of the debates we're having here in New York about land, property, how we conceive of it, what kind of policies are appropriate for it. So I think if you were to read it, you'll find some great parallels between the debates we're having here about community land trusts and rezonings, affordable housing and public ownership, uh, and the history of how land's been treated in the country and the very context of private property that we often operate from. So some suggestions for beach reading or summer reading over the next few weeks. Obviously, if you want uh, shorter and more immediate reading, GothamGazette.com has some excellent reporting on that charter commission and on the 20th senatorial district race. And heck, I'll even say that one of my articles about the race we're talking about today in the 20th district between Zellner Myrie and Jesse Hamilton uh, is, uh, is also on that list of uh, stuff you can read if you, uh, if you have a moment or two. So we're on Max and Murphy, 99.5 FM, WBAI, and we're discussing one of those primaries that will be occurring on September 13th. Again, that's chiefly for Democrats, uh, at least in the city, and uh, certainly for September 13th. Democrats running for governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, and several state senate districts, uh, including the 20th, which covers, as we mentioned before, Brownsville and several other uh, central and southern Brooklyn neighborhoods. We've talked in recent weeks also with people from the 31st Senatorial District, which uh, is in northern Manhattan and down the west side. That's Marisol Alcantara, the incumbent senator, being challenged by Robert Jackson, the former councilman. We've uh, spoken also with Tony Avella, the senator from the 11th District in Queens, and his challenger, John Liu, the former city councilperson and city comptroller. There are several other races like that involving the IDC. And there also is a uh, primary in uh, the Martin Malave delon district featuring Julia Salazar. That is not an IDC-related primary. 
We also have in Brooklyn uh, one of the few seats where Democrats are running to challenge an incumbent Republican. That's where uh, Andrew Gennardis and Ross Barkin are fighting for the right to challenge Marty Golden, who is the uh, state senator, Republican state senator from from that district. So a lot of very interesting races going on. And as Elder Myrie said, a lot of larger implications to this one way or the other about how these races go, what they say about the party, what they say about the party's chances to make a statewide case. And um, we are waiting now for Jesse Hamilton to come on. And he'll be speaking about his time in the 20th Senatorial District. Hamilton was elected in 2014. It was a tightly contested uh, primary that year as well. Uh, He won a fairly tight race and then was reelected resoundingly two years ago. And shortly after his primary victory, but before the general election, he said he would join the Independent Democratic Conference. And that conference, of course, existed from 2011 until this April when Governor Cuomo brokered a uh, peace deal, a a reunification deal between the IDC and the mainstream Democrats. It still did not give them control of the upper body of the legislature. That's still controlled by Republicans. And uh, we'll wait to see what the outcome of November is as to whether those numbers change or not. Uh, Right now it's a 32-31 body. There are 63 Senate seats. And the Republicans rule because Brooklyn's own Simca Felder, elected as a Democrat, has long caucused with the Republican side. Uh, I think we have Senator Hamilton on the line. We do. Senator, welcome to Max and Murphy. Uh, yes, uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. A pleasure to have you here. Um, I'll ask you the same question we ask all candidates. I'm a guy you've run into on the street. Give me your elevator pitch for why I should vote for you. Uh, I've been in the community now, my family for over 50 years, and myself as a community advocate, I've been doing now for 22 years, uh, from being the uh, school board president uh, with the fifth best school in New York State, from being the Democratic District Leader of the 43rd Assembly District, uh, President of my Block Association, and the Vice President of the Community Board. And all those positions were for free. It, it, I was, I'm dedicated to my community. I'm raising my family here. My wife and I, we have two you know, lovely children. My daughter goes to Brooklyn Tech, and my son goes to Midwood. And I've been voting continuously uh, in the community uh, for you know, over two decades. My wife's a judge. I'm a licensed attorney. And I just, I just love the community, and I love serving the community. So before we get to the contours of the race, I want to ask you about an incident that was in the news recently where you were campaigning on a street and someone called 911 on you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's um, walking while black. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon. And I, I was shocked at first in that, you know, I had a palm card that's saying fighting back against Trump. And she said I was being divisive, uh, showing that card to people in the street, uh, greeting them at the subway. And then she asked me about my uh, immigration uh, issues, and I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm pro-immigration. Uh, 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 I voted for the DREAM Act for children to get a free education. Uh, I voted for the Liberty Act to have uh, a New York State be a sanctuary state. My office is a sanctuary office. Uh, we allocated $10 million for free immigration legal uh, services. Uh, I allocated to my own uh, my discretionary money $180,000 for uh, a free uh, legal attorneys from legal aid. And, and so... I was shocked that she said that you know immigrants are deluding America. They take resources that we need as far as housing and uh, health care and food stamps. And she just kept badgering me, badgering me. Uh, we took a picture of her because you know I'm like this woman. Something you know I had never met a Trump supporter uh, that riled up. 
And then eventually she told me to leave. I said, I'm not leaving. You know, I have a right to be here, freedom of speech. And she said, no, you don't. Uh, he's the president, and you're undermining the president, and I'm going to call the police. And she called the police. Uh, and so that's what happened. And we had a press conference, and I'm going to do some legislation uh, to, if you're not intimidating anybody, harassing anybody, or bothering anybody, and someone calls 911 because of hatred, bias, and bigotry, uh, we're, you know, we want to make, to make that a heightened uh, hate crime. Uh, you can't have people who see a person of color in the street and they call the police on them. You know, they're being traumatized, intimidated, and that's not, that's not America. And it's happening all over. It happened to a young girl eating at Smith College. It happened to a young lady who just fell asleep in the common area at Yale University. So elected officials knocking on doors uh, in Oregon to two young men who were sitting in Starbucks. People just have a propensity to want to call the police. And false reporting uh, under this 911 uh, is going to be a hate crime. It's going to be a hate crime. You know, if you falsely report someone to the police with 911, it's going to be a hate crime. You can't use it to, you know, to, to intimidate anybody. Uh, and traumatized because you know for young youth you know we had a problem in, in, the, in the district where new people are moving in uh, and gentrifiers who don't understand the dynamics maybe young black boys and girls speak loudly and talk loudly but doesn't mean they're getting into a fight and you just can't call 911 because you're going to traumatize the kids for just being themselves so we, we need more diversity training and more understanding that just because someone doesn't look like you doesn't mean they're committing a crime and if they're not committing a crime and they're not intimidating anybody they're not bothering anybody and they're not being menacing, why are you calling 911? Senator, so let me uh, let me ask you about um, about President Trump, because it's it's um, um, that incident is, is, as you've noted, absurd. But it is interesting that the Trump's name has come up in your Senate race. Uh, you, I think we'll talk about whether you feel that's justified or not, because after your most recent election, two thousand sixteen, you announced, or, or I should say, on the he- on the on the eve of that election, you announced you would be joining the Independent Democratic Conference. Donald Trump was elected a few days later, and that conference continued to align itself with Republicans in the state Senate. Were you ever uncomfortable being aligned with the party of Donald Trump? I was never aligned with the party of Donald Trump. That's why I don't have any problems with that. I've always been aligned with the Democrats. And I have one of the most diverse districts uh, in New York State. I have uh, uh, Park Slope. I have Sunset Park, Gowanus, Prospect Heights, Crown Heights, uh, Flatbush, and Brownsville. And I have a crisis in my district. I have a housing crisis. Uh, I have an education crisis. And I have a criminal justice crisis. And I can't tell people in my community who are being, uh, you know, kicked out of their apartments illegally that to wait two more years until we can help you out. So this is what I did. My office gets over 100 landlord-tenant cases coming in every year. Uh, my office is overwhelmed. So I had to get Brooklyn Housing and Legal Services to come into my office to accommodate all these landlord-tenant cases coming into my office. I've allocated $200,000 for free housing legal services to make sure when somebody goes to court, uh, they can win their case. When you have a, an attorney and you go to court, you win 90% of the cases. Uh, education in Browns of uh, Crown Heights, some schools, only 17% of the kids are reading at grade level. And no one's talking about that. So we started the campus. Uh, we're teaching kids how to code. How to, how to create apps. Uh, we're doing hackathons. We have culturally sensitive uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers uh, who, who, you know, because the second leading cause of death for our youth is suicide, workforce development, and anti gang violence. And so we have we also purchased, you know, half a million dollars in computer technology. We have more 3D printers in my district than any other district in the state of New York because our kids need the skills that they need to be competitive. In the more affluent neighborhoods like Park Slope, the parents can have a million dollar fundraiser. And in, in my part, it underserved. The parents don't have that money nor wherewithal to get that type of money. So I'm giving them an even playing field as far as education, bringing in NASA scientists, uh, 
teaching kids how to do play therapy, meditation, yoga, changing the narrative. And now that the reading and math scores are going up because we have 40, 63 community-based organizations working with us to enhance the holistic approach to education, criminal justice. I have some of the most highest incarceration rates in my young youth in my district. The prison pipeline coming right through my district. Uh, we raised the age, uh, trying to get that passed for 12 years. I took it on my first year. I took it on. I got raised the age pass. No more 16 and 17-year-olds being incarcerated with adults coming out 36 more times likely to commit suicide. I Senator, the on, on the yeah. core issue, you mentioned how important the housing crisis is in some of your work right. to try to help constituents on a one-by-one one basis to, to fight eviction. But you are a co-sponsor in the Senate of what are considered the three key bills for strengthening rent stabilization, uh, getting rid of vacancy decontrol, eliminating or reducing the vacancy bonus, and restricting the use of preferential rents. Uh, those bills, though, did not go anywhere, as far as I know, in the last session. Given how well, important... That's, that's, those bills are extremely important. I co-sponsored the vacancy decontrol bill. I co-sponsored the, the, the banning of, uh, of uh, uh, the, the, rent, the, the vacancy bonus, the 20% for landlords. And I co-sponsored the ban preferential rent. And I am only one of 16 senators, Democrats, who voted for it. So we have some Democrats who are not voting to strengthen our rent regulations laws. So, you know, I always say look at a person's voting record. And my voting record is a voting record that is voting to strengthen rent regulation laws. Uh, 265 Hawthorne, Hawthorne Street, I worked uh, to fight HPD to get the 69 units in there from, from being tenants to cooperative owners. Uh, we finally won this year. We have 69 uh, apartment owners now, rental, uh, or rental, uh, rental people, who are now own their cooperatives for an amazing $2,500. And so we're fighting the mayor and developers for free land when he wants to build million-dollar condos. The mayor has built five new hotels in Brownsville. I don't know if you're vacationing in Brownsville this summer, but why are we building hotels disguised for homeless shelters which is the most debilitating place we could put a child in the family in. And we're spending 3000 to $4,000 a month to just put people in these homeless shelters. We're coming out with mental issues. It breaks you down mentally, physically, and spiritually. And that is the housing policy of our mayor. And that's why we were fighting the mayor. They were saying, you can build affordable. You know we can build affordable. I'm an appraiser for 28 years. I'm an attorney. I have an MBA. And with the, when, the, when the mayor wanted to give us a million-dollar condos, I asked for the financials. We haven't gotten it yet. I filed a four request. It made international news. And why aren't the mayor giving us the financials for the Bedford Union Armory? And so, so my record of fighting developers and, and fighting for rent regulations is you know, something that I, I'm proud of, that I'm one of only maybe 16, 17 senators who are doing that out of 63. So we have a lot to do on the Democratic side to make sure our Democratic senators come on board and vote for stronger rent regulations. We're on the line with Senator Jesse Hamilton from the 20th District in Brooklyn. He's running for re-election on September 13th. We're happy to take your calls if you have a question, not a speech uh, or a sermon, but a question for the senator, 347-335-0818 is that number. Senator, you uh, have taken donations from some developers, from uh, developer interests like Rebney. And I guess the question I have is, why are they giving you money and why do you accept it, given the fact that I'm assuming you wouldn't take money from just anybody? Well, the mayor gets money from Remy. Remy gets money to a lot of people. Uh, but as he just mentioned earlier, I'm only one of 15, 16 senators who are fighting Remy on rent regulations uh, as far as banning the vacancy uh, decontrol, uh, co-sponsored the ban, 
the vacancy bond is at 20%, and I co-sponsored the ban, the preference for rent. So I feel comfortable with my voting record. I feel comfortable in my office handling over 100 cases a year on landlord-tenant issues. I feel comfortable in bringing Brooklyn Housing and Legal Services into my office to accommodate that. And I'm also feel comfortable in having $200,000 allocated for free housing uh, legal services. So uh, I don't know of any other senator that has the volume of cases that I have, because I'm like ground zero. Uh, we're also introducing legislation that won't allow landlords to buy a building where the rent roll doesn't justify the mortgage. You know, and that's what landlords are doing. They're buying buildings where the rent roll doesn't justify the mortgage, and they're buying buildings that have long-term tenants who've been there for a long period of time who are harassing them and kicking them out their homes. So I've been in the forefront in, in making that happen. I've been fighting the mayor on saturating uh, neighborhoods of color with homeless shelters, which are debilitating. I have some schools in, in my district where 20, 51% of the kids are coming from homeless shelters. That shouldn't be the case. We're the richest country in the world. Senator, so, let's, uh, let's go to the, the, to the phone lines. We have a call. Uh, hi, welcome to Max and Murphy. What's your question for the senator? Hi, my name is James. I'm calling from Crown Act. I have a question for the senator. Uh, senator, I voted for you in 2014. I followed your campaign in 2016. Uh, you promised to be a Democrat for us. Yeah, you joined the IDC. I want to know why did you lie to us? I, I've always been a Democrat. Um, and if you look at my housing policy, I, I've been the most progressive in regulation. My education policy, I, I've built the first, I've been a school board president. Uh, I've been fighting the, the uh, board of, of, of education. I don't know if you heard of Mega Evers Prep. If you're from Crown Heights, you should have heard of Mega Evers Prep. It's the best high school in the state for children of color. But the mayor and the board of education wants to dumb it down and change the admissions requirements. We, and the parents and uh, myself and the community leaders went down to the board of education and protested to tell them this school has a 98% regents uh, graduation rate, predominantly kids of color, and they graduated this year 40 kids with an associate degree. Uh, as far as environmental racism, uh, the uh, New York leader conservation voters, uh, my record is 100%. And they have uh, endorsed me uh, for, for that. My principles as a Democrat hasn't changed. My integrity hasn't changed. And my philosophy hasn't changed as a Democrat. So um, my immigration policy, I'm the only sanctuary city uh, office in Brooklyn. I've allocated $10 million for free immigration legal services. So my whole platform and what I'm doing is the most progressive Democrat in the state. So you need to look at what I'm doing and don't listen to the rhetoric. Value me on what I'm doing on the ground in the trenches in my community. We have, uh, sorry, Senator, I hate to cut you off, but we have another call. I want to get it in. Uh, Hi, you're on Max and Murphy. What's your question for Senator Hamilton? Well, my question is, I would like to know what's going on with all the high rises, you know, that's building up all around me and we can't afford to live in them. That's a good question. The mayor and his policy is we have to fight him on the Bedford Armory for his free land, and he wants to build million dollar condos. I was like, no way. Uh, we're, we're fighting near Prospect uh, Park. They're building all these new houses, but the affordable is not affordable for us. And so, what I'm doing right now, I'm working with the governor. Uh, he's allocated $700 million for low income workforce housing. All right, and we're going to be building those houses. The RP is coming out soon. Uh, 3,000 3, units uh, in the area of Kings County Hospital, uh, uh, Downstate, and uh, Kingsburg Jewish Medical Center. So I've been in prison for 28 years, ma'am, and they're lying to us. They're saying they can't build affordable. They can build affordable. They're trying to put us in shelters like Indians on the reservation to, and then to, demor- to, to, to break our spirit and then offer us $20,000 to move. 
That's the game plan. Tell us they can't build a foldable when they can. Put us build hotels and build homeless shelters. Put us in there to mentally uh, break us down, physically break us down, uh, spiritually break us down, and then offer us twenty thousand dollars to move. We have to say no to the shelters, no to the money, and no to housing that is not for us. Let's take uh, Atlantic Yards. They promised us affordable housing, and guess what? They, they, they all, you have to make $100,000 to move in there. So they, Senator, they have, bamboozled and hooked with us with the Atlantic Yards, and I say enough is enough. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm in the trenches fighting for my people to make sure we have the resources to fight back. We have another call on the line. Last one I think we'll be able to take. What's your question for Senator Hamilton? Hey, how y'all doing? Um, my question is about charter schools. I want to know, I want to know if these um, poor charter schools, and I just want to get my opinion on them. I think they're in a the part-time system. Mm-hmm. They give different treatment along class lines. And I, I hear what the senator is saying, and it sounds good, but we need to get down to the nuts and bolts of what's going on in our community. Thank I'll you. So, Senator, the question is, you, what's you, your position you on are, charter you schools? Are, you are absolutely right. In, in my Brownsville area, in my East Flatbush area, in my Klein Heights area, parents want a choice. You know, you have some schools where only 17% of the kids are reading at grade level. If that had been in any affluent white neighborhood, the parents would be up in arms fighting, and they wouldn't let it happen. But when it comes to schools of color, it's okay. It's like a tale of two cities. In, in a poor neighborhood, it's okay the kids don't learn. And I'm saying our kids are the most brightest, articulate kids in the world. Wherever our kids put their minds to it, we can do it. That's why I put all this money into computer technology. That's why I'm putting the resources in, because I know our kids can learn. And I'm tired of our kids being shortchanged with the CFB and with the transparency of the DOE, always giving money to the more affluent neighborhoods. So charter schools are a choice, uh, and if our parents should have a choice. You know, we pay our taxpayer dollars. And some of us can't afford to send our kids to private school. We don't have that luxury. So I don't care, you know, if it's charter school, if it's public school. What I'm saying is that I want the schools to educate our children and to make sure our kids are educated. We have good charter schools. We have good public schools. Right. But we need to get more qualified uh, people in those schools. And what I did was with the campus, we have 63 community-based organizations coming together. We have to get some of these community-based organizations that teach technology. I have Blue 1647 and Digital Girls. I got money from Google to teach our kids computer technology. Because you can, you can make $80,000 a year with a high school diploma certified in coding. So why aren't we teaching those curriculums in our school? And I'm changing that dynamic. I'm bringing in engineers from NASA. I'm bringing in doctors from the hospital to talk to our kids and say, hey, you can make it. You are bright. You articulate. You look like me, and you can do what you have to do. And I'm getting young black men from historically black colleges to come in there and show our young black men that you are somebody, you can be somebody, and you can liberate your mind. And I passed the Black History Bill for two years in a row. That black history be taught in our schools from kindergarten to the 12th grade in the New York State Senate that's controlled by Republicans. And as I passed, I started getting uh, N-word threats, death threats, all kind of threats. And the people who, who won't let the black history come into our school is the New York State's regents. And the reason is why is that they don't want to change the curriculum to put more on the plate of people who are teaching. And I said, that's, that's not unacceptable. We should have more black history in our schools to liberate the minds of our young black boys and girls. And it's unacceptable that 70% of our middle school students are not reading that grade level. No one is talking about that. You're talking about some other... Why, why did I do what I do to get more money? I did it because our kids are not learning. We are being pushed out of our communities, and our kids are going to jail. That's why I did it. Senator Jesse Hamilton, we have 30 seconds left, so this is a very quick question. Gentrification is a reality in this district, for better and worse or worse. Uh, can you represent newcomers to this neighborhood? If you consider yourself a gentrifier and you're listening to this show, 
if you're reelected, will you be a senator for them too? How do you how do you bring those two different sides of your community together? I, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a senator uh, for all the people uh, in my community. I just think some we have to be more sensitive uh, to each other uh, in our community and learn how to uh, work together. And I think a lot of people are willing to do that uh, to work together and to make the change uh, acceptable. But at the same time, we can't turn a blind eye to people being pushed out their out their homes. We can't turn a blind eye to uh, mass incarceration of young people in our community. And we can't turn a blind eye to the lack of, of a quality education. So we have some issues, and I wish when people do come in who have the wherewithal to help out, that they do help out the people who are less fortunate uh, than they are. Uh, and they do patronize the establishments that are of color in the community and so and to spread the resources. So I, I think we're, we're moving into the right direction, uh, but a lot of times people are, are working, and we're, we're looking to have more dialogue and more conversations about more diversity in our neighborhoods. Senator Jesse Hamilton, Democrat from the 20th Senatorial District, running for re-election on September 13th. Sir, thank you very much for coming on the show, and best of luck to you. And thank you for having me on my show. And we're back for a few minutes here on WBAI 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio here in Brooklyn. You're listening to Max and Murphy. I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, and we're coming to the end of our show. We've heard from two candidates, Democrats, running the September 13th primary for State Senate District 20 in Brooklyn, Zellner Myrie and the incumbent, Mr. Jesse Hamilton. Uh, you heard what they said. You can read online more details of that race. Uh, but speaking of reading, I wanted to jump on a soapbox for the last few minutes of the show and talk a little bit about... Uh, uh, our responsibility as news consumers. This week, a lot of national news was dominated by a member, former member of Donald Trump's administration who was forced out of the administration, wrote a tell-all book, had all kinds of details about the president's Diet Coke habit, a uh, recording apparently made inside the Situation Room of her getting fired. Uh, an interesting story, certainly, but a story that through its repetition and replication around the news cycle, 24 hours, many channels, many websites, blotted out a lot of other important news. You know, there was 40 kids killed in an airstrike in Yemen in a war that nobody is talking about. There's a report out from the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this week, a very frightening one, about feedback effects from climate change. The fact that increasingly we might be seeing an acceleration of climate change because the ice caps are melting and so the planet is darker and reflecting less light and because of changes in the soil. Uh, there is a report just today that the New York Times upshot had, but the fact that op opioid uh, deaths totaled 72,000 in 2017. That's a 10% rise over the year before more people than died of HIV or gun violence. Uh, these are all important stories, and so is the stuff about people leaving the Trump administration. But what I think news consumers don't realize sometimes in today's day and age is that the decisions you make as you click on stories have an hour-to-hour, -hour, even a minute-to-minute -minute impact on the news you see. News directors and editors at websites, TV stations, even at radio stations, are making decisions on coverage based on how stories do on their website, how they do on social. So as you're clicking and retweeting and posting around, please consider that. And make sure that you certainly tweet the stories that move you, that are interesting, that are maybe even guilty pleasures. But think also about the fact that uh, there's a wider world of news out there, some of which will get blocked out if we only pay attention to the bouncing ball 
often set in motion by the commander-in-chief. You've been listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm Jarrett Murphy. Next week will be Ben Max solo with a conversation about uh, race in the 10 years since Barack Obama accepted the Democratic nomination for president. That's about 10 years ago this August. And uh, also more on some of the other state Senate races. In coming weeks, we'll be talking about the governor's race, the attorney general's races, of course, lieutenant governor uh, contest between uh, Ms. Hochul and Mr. Williams, and all the other issues that are on the ballot, September 13th, looking ahead to the general election and, of course, the period of governing after that. Thanks for listening to Max and Murphy. Please keep reading, keep tweeting, and get ready to vote. WBAI New York, your community bulletin board. The WBAI Community Advisory Board, also known as the CAB, will meet on Sunday, August 19th at 1 p.m. in the atrium of the Deutsche Bank Building at 60 Wall Street. All are welcome to attend. Also on Sunday, August 19th, Little Voices from Fukushima, a film by director Hitomi Kamanaka, screens at 6.30 p.m. at the Interference Archive. Little Voices from Fukushima travels between Fukushima and post-Chernobyl Belarus, where people are making difficult decisions. This film follows a group of mothers in Fukushima who formed a neighborhood association to share resources and to support each other in taking action. The screening will be followed by a discussion and a short presentation about radiation monitoring. And Interference Archive is located at 314 7th Street in Brooklyn between 4th and 5th Avenues. For more information, go to interferencearchive.org. And it's Food Not Bombs on Sundays in Tompkins Square Park. Food Not Bombs, FNB, founded in the early 80s as an outgrowth of the anti-nuclear movement, is based on the notion that if resources were not misallocated on weapons of mass destruction and perpetuating the existing system of greed, there would be plenty to meet everyone's basic needs. And in Lower Manhattan, you can help cook at 1 p.m. A Catholic worker located at 36 First Street between 1st and 2nd Avenues. After that, everyone shares a cooked meal from 4 to 6 p.m. in Tompkins Square Park. Everyone is welcome. And for more information, find Lower Manhattan Food Not Bombs on Facebook. The New Sanctuary Coalition, an immigrants' rights organization, stands in solidarity with families and communities resisting detention and deportation. And every Tuesday at 6 p.m., its clinic helps 50 or more immigrants prepare for immigration proceedings, apply for asylum, and assert their rights. Lawyers and non-lawyers are needed to assist in this volunteer effort. The meeting is in the Vanderbilt Building of NYU Law, located at 40 Washington Square South. For more information, go to newsanctuaryNYC.org. On August 21st, New York State's largest African-American chamber's president, Phil Andrews, will be one of the speakers at the 2018 Fireside 
Keos, K-E-O-S, Key Elements of Success Chats. This program features stories of local successful businesses and business leaders. Cocktails and live band from 6 to 7 p.m. at the Belmore Volunteer Firemen's Hall. And the fireside chat begins at 7 at the Belmore Movie Theater, located at 229 Petite Avenue in Belmore, New York. For tickets and more information, go to eventbrite.com and look for KEOS Fireside Chat, Belmore, New York. Summer Movies Under the Stars in Prospect Park's Longmeadow continues with the screening of the 1951 version of Alice in Wonderland on the 22nd. Neighborhood partners provide on-site activities before the screenings and musical entertainment by Maricone Youth begins at 7. For more information, go to prospectpark.org. If you have an event you would like us to announce, please send it two weeks in advance to cbb at wbai.org. Thank you, Earth Mom, for those announcements from the Community Bulletin Board. The previous program was Max and Murphy, which is heard Wednesdays at 5 p.m. here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and wbai.org online. Thank you, listeners, once again for your ongoing support during our most recent fund drive. You are the reason why we call this listener-sponsored media, and we thank you for that. Whatever premiums you requested during our most recent drive, we'll do our very best to send them to you as soon as possible as you make sure you honor your pledge. This is a reciprocal thing. That's why we can do what we can do because of your support. It is almost 6 p.m. Stay tuned for a news brief of 